Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Good evening. Okay. I heard the warm up. All right. <laughs> um, Mr. Clerk, could you please read the order of bills? Uh, good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. Uh, you can see their videos on YouTube and catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Ricardo Cano. I cover education for Cal Matters and your moderator for today's program. This program is being held in association with Cal Matters, a nonprofit news organization covering California's most important issues. I'm now pleased to introduce today's speaker, California State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Mr. Tony Thurmond. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Superintendent Thurmond became California's 28th State Superintendent of Public Instruction in January. Previously, he represented the 15th Assembly District, which encompasses the Northern East Bay. Mr. Thurmond became the second African-American to hold the office of State Superintendent and fourth African-American to win statewide office in California following Wilson Riles. Prior to being elected to the Assembly in 2014, he was a member of the Richmond City Council, a board member of the West Contra Costa County Unified School District, and he was a social services administrator. Superintendent Thurmond came from humble beginnings. His mother was an immigrant from Panama who came to San Jose to be a teacher. His father was a soldier who didn't return to be with his family after the Vietnam War. Mr. Thurmond met him for the first time when he was an adult. After Mr. Thurmond's mother died when he was six years old, he and his brother were raised by a cousin they had never met. Superintendent Thurman's public education allowed him to attend Temple University, where he became a student body president. He earned dual master's degrees in law and social policy and social work from Bryn Mawr College and began a career focused on public service. Education was a focus of Superintendent Thurman's legislative record in the state assembly. He authored legislation that expanded the state's free lunch program, bilingual education, and the Chafee Grant College Scholarship Program for foster youth. His legislation also focused on improving access to families for early education and child care. Superintendent Thurmond introduced legislation to expand STEM education, improve school conditions for LGBTQ youth, and tax private prisons to fund early education and after-school programs. He definitely faces challenges in his current position. California ranks 41st in per-student funding when adjusted for cost of living. The state is behind the national average in reading and math proficiency, according to the latest results from the nation's report card. And results from last year's state standardized exams showed that about half of the state's students mastered California's reading standards and 39% were proficient in math. To discuss his plans for improving California schools, please welcome Mr. Tony Thurman. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> So, Superintendent, you've, you've had a pretty busy two months, and uh, I think it would be very helpful if you could briefly just give us a sense of the range of things that the State Superintendent of Public Instruction is responsible for. Well, I like to say that you get all the blame and none of the tools that you need to do the job. Um, it's one of those positions that most people don't understand because we have over a thousand school districts in our state, but the State Superintendent doesn't have direct authority over them. Uh, most of what I do depends on a relationship that I build with members of the legislature and with the governor so that we can provide good resources in our budget to support our school districts and support our six million students. And so I'm pleased to report that in three months, um, nothing broken yet, but we'll keep you posted. And um, there are many challenges, but I'm very, very encouraged by the opportunities that I think lie ahead for helping all of our students. Sure. And California, you know, it's a nation state. It's the nation's largest school system, 6.2 million kids uh, in public district and charter schools. And majority of them come from low-income households. Uh, Superintendent, you bring a very compelling background to this office. You've experienced poverty and adversity as a youth and can empathize with many of California's disadvantaged kids in ways that others in state government probably can't. 
Um, how is your job as superintendent influenced by these experiences that you've gained? And what is your vision for California's public schools when it comes to educating our most disadvantaged students? Thank you for that and, and for laying out what you have. You know, let's, you know I'm, I'm very um, conscious of the fact that education really saved my life. And I think about where I might be were it not for the education that I received, were it not for great teachers who really stood by me and supported me when I struggled as a student. Um, as you heard, I am the descendant of African-American slaves and immigrants from Panama and Colombia and Jamaica and Detroit, Michigan, by the way, of Mississippi, where my father came from. Um, because of the circumstances in my life, losing my mom at a very young age, being raised by a cousin who I didn't know until I showed up, my family often struggled, and uh, we relied on many public programs to overcome those adversities. I was a student on the free lunch program. You know, I, uh, all my friends made fun of me for eating the free lunch, and then I realized that every student in my school was on the free lunch program. Um, I was on public assistance. Um, I ate a thing called government cheese um, to help my family uh, address hunger issues. Um, but the most important public program that I ever was able to benefit from was getting a great public education. And uh, my teachers really believed in me. And they taught me that if you believe that education can open doors for you, that your life will be different than it had started. And I really believe um, that it were not for the education, for my cousin who took me in, countless mentors, um, that I would have easily ended up in California State Prison instead of serving as California State Superintendent of Public Instruction. And, and we owe this to all of the students in our state. We have many students who are homeless, they're hungry, they've been impacted by trauma, and these are conditions that make it hard to learn. It doesn't mean that you can't, but it means that we've got to provide the resources to help them. We have to provide more school counselors and more mental health programs more health programs for students at our schools. We've got to make sure that our students can get a decent meal, and we have to build stronger programs for our students who are living in shelters and who are homeless. Um, and we have to do this while at the same time saying that every single student should be provided with computer science training and opportunities to help prepare them for the jobs of tomorrow. Because our workforce depends on it, our society depends on it. There'll be a million and a half jobs in technology in just a few years and only half of those jobs will be filled unless we make changes that help every single one of our students. Ricardo, someone told me once that I should only focus on students who show promise and potential. Um, I reject that notion. I think all of our students show promise and potential. And it's incumbent on us to help our students find and shape and hone that potential. If someone had made those kind of choices about me, a, a very shy, quiet kid who could have easily fallen through the cracks, uh, I wouldn't have the opportunity to serve uh, in this position and fight for our kids every single day. I think it's incumbent on us as Californians with all that we've been given to give all that we can to all six million of our kids. Sure, absolutely. And, um, you know, on the campaign trail, uh, you, you said a couple times that, you know, this is not a soft landing for you. Uh, you you <laughs> were in a very safe <laughs> uh, seat in the assembly and, and could have stayed there for um, many years if you wanted to. And I'm just wondering if there was a moment in your life, uh, an aha moment or, or event uh, in your life as a kid or in college where you realized that you really wanted to get into the arena of shaping uh, education policy? I tried to forget the campaign, but thanks for bringing me back. <laughs> when they spend $40 million against your candidacy, it really is a wake-up call. And it lets you know that the campaign is more than about you. It's really about the heart and soul of preserving public education in this country. And, and, uh, and so um, my aha moment came, my first, my first thought that maybe I could have a career in politics was in college. You mentioned being student body president. And um, as a student, seeing that we could change decisions that our university was making to increase financial aid, that we could change decisions about where the university invested its money. And as a student, our university was investing money in the South African government at a time when black South Africans weren't allowed to vote. And as a student leader who led an effort to say, divest your dollars out of this type of a government, um, that really, a light bulb went off. And I realized for the first time that I could uh, potentially make change uh, through politics. 
Now, it would take me 20 plus years before I'd ever put my name on a ballot and run for office. I, I, I pursued social work and I worked with young people who were in foster care and people who had disabilities and people who needed more support or people who needed a second chance to leave the criminal justice system. Um, but the, the idea never left me that politics could be a place for making change. And as I worked with families who were in long-term poverty, I realized if we don't change the systems that impact our families, um, we'll just be putting Band-Aids on those problems. And so politics became a way for me to look to make systemic changes to help Californians. And I'm grateful that I've been given the opportunity to serve the last 12-plus years uh, as a public official working to improve our communities. Sure. And um, let's let's talk about some policy. (laughs) Um, So in 2013... Governor Jerry Brown signed into law the Local Control Funding Formula, uh, a landmark education reform that aimed to close the state's achievement gap between disadvantaged students and their peers by rewriting the formula that distributes funds to public schools. Uh, Schools with higher concentrations of students in need get more money now uh, compared to those that don't, and um, schools now have a lot more freedom in deciding how to spend that money as opposed to, you know, the rigid system of, of categoricals that we had uh, from before, you know, we're in the sixth year of of this new funding formula, and it's not yet clear that the achievement gap is, is closing. Um, the state's latest math and reading scores show uh, minimal progress. Is is it working? I, I think it does make a huge difference. I, I love the framework for local control funding formula because, as you described, you know, being able to refu- receive more funding for districts that serve, you know, high level of disadvantaged students, like you described, foster youth and others. I, I think that is a, a, a roadmap for bringing more equity to our schools. I think what we're seeing when you look at flat test scores and you look at some of the challenges that continue uh, and that persist, I think what we're seeing is that the local control funding formula by itself is not enough. It does it, it gives flexibility to districts to make decisions at the local level. It allows districts to make decisions about what they'll fund and what they won't. Um, and that has removed some of the burdens that many school districts face. I, I know because in 2008, I was on a school board, and the first night that I was sworn in, I was asked to vote to close 10 schools. And it was because the state's economy and subsequently the state's budget were so bad that the kind of pressure um, dictated making reductions uh, uh, of that nature. And so I believe that the local control um, and local funding um, sources really move us in the right direction. But we are still 41st in the nation in pro-pupil spending, even though California is the fifth wealthiest economy in the world. And no matter what you do, until we resolve that, we're going to continue to see challenges in our educational system, our teacher shortage, um, you know, our, 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 our resource shortages. And uh, so I believe that we've got to um, close that funding gap. And for California, um, for a state of our size, um, we need to have billions invested and new permanent revenue invested to say that our kids are number one. They say that you show your value by what you put in your budget. And so if we value our kids... We have to show them that they are number one. And that means we have to make investments that make our per pupil spending number one for every single student in this state. Um, That's my top priority uh, in this office is to move us to a a closer place of getting to number one. Uh, I've launched a a working group that's focused on one thing, identifying permanent funding sources that can augment our state budget so that we can move our kids to being number one. Um, And there are many things on the conversation. People are talking about making changes to Prop 13 and creating a split roll tax. Um, There's a proposal that will be on the ballot in 2020 that, if passed, could generate another 10 to 11 billion dollars for the state's general fund, five to six billion dollars more that could go into K-12 education. And so I believe that we have to look to investments like this that will move California to where it belongs. Number one. And and certainly we will get to to funding because that is that is a, a big ticket uh, item here. But uh, with regards to the local control funding formula, um, the the legislature has asked the California State Auditor to um, examine the, the the funding mechanism and see how schools have implemented it uh, this month. 
Um, clearly, there is a push among legislators uh, for more transparency. Yes. Um, Governor Jerry Brown, when he was in office, essentially said that this is an issue that uh, should be handled in local school boards, local school districts, not in Sacramento. Um, should the state be tracking where, how schools are spending this money under the local control funding formula? Yeah, I believe in full transparency and accountability. The citizens of the state of California have been very, very generous as it relates to providing revenue for our schools, providing revenue for local roads and transportation measures, um, for parks and water. You know, our, our citizens in this state um, provide more money through local parcel taxes and measures and bonds. I think that there should be full transparency uh, in how those dollars get used. Uh, I think that is, that is the promise that we make to the people who elect us to be good stewards of public resources. And I think we have to have the kind of open conversations where we say this is how the dollars are being used. I think that is inherent in the spirit of what the local control funding formula is about, that there's local decision-making for how dollars get spent. And if citizens are asking for an accounting and a report out of how those dollars are, are being used, I think we owe it to our citizens to provide that. Sure. And, um, you know, you, you did mention that you have a group looking at at finding, you know, um, permanent revenues of funding sources and that, we, you know, we are 41st when compared to when when adjusted for cost of living. Um, you know, the state has put in twenty three billion dollars uh, through LCFF, which which basically just puts, you know, uh, uh, education where it was before the recession. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm wondering, you know, do you have a figure in mind that the state ought to be aiming for when it comes to spending on education? And what would what would schools, what would public schools that are funded to this level look like? Well, there's a report that was put out um, by a number of institutions of reports called Getting Down to Facts 2. And it analyzed what California spends compared to other states and essentially says that we should be spending um, in the billions more. Um, and in amounts that are comparable to, say, New York State. Um, we are a large state and with complex and diverse needs, and so uh, we should be spending more. Uh, spending more, to me, means that we can change the way we pay teachers in our state. And right now, um, you know, when you look at cost of living, our teachers are amongst the lowest paid anywhere. And there have been many strikes in the nation. There have been um, two since since I've been sworn in, um, I spent 30 hours mediating the strike in Oakland to help those folks resolve their, their conflicts. Um, I did a lot of behind-the-scenes work in the Los Angeles teacher strike. You know, these teachers, they're, vo- they're adding their voices to teachers across the nation who are saying, yes, we need to increase salaries. But they're also saying we have to improve the conditions for our students. They're saying smaller class sizes. They're saying more psychologists and nurses in our schools and more support services for our students. And so if we increase the amount of revenue that we have for our schools, we can pay teachers more. We can provide more services for our students. We can provide more technology for our students. It is unbelievable to me that there are places in California where a student can only get access to the Internet if a truck with a mobile hotspot pulls up at their school. California is a leader. We have to be a leader in technology. Um, we, we, are, we are a leader in innovation. We will not be able to compete in innovation if we are requiring students to get access to the Internet in that way. We will be creating a digital divide that will leave many of our future leaders behind. We should be insisting that every one of our students has access to the best technology, that they have a chance to you know, work in, in, in a, an internship so they can learn about future opportunities, that they can have access to science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Because one day, um, these students who, you know, few have access to a makerspace, all of our students should have access to a makerspace. Because our students are very entrepreneurial, and some of them are going to come up with the cure for some illness. Uh, some of them are going to come up with technology for helping us advance our needs um, in, in moving California to the forefront. But if we don't invest in our students, um, we're hurting them and we're hurting our own community and our own success. 
And so as superintendent, I want to drive towards more investment in the programs that we know will ultimately benefit our students. And, you know, the, the state, the financial state, a lot of school districts across the state, um, you know, no other way to describe it. A lot of them are in financial uh, uh, distress. You know, we're seeing reports of districts making cuts, projecting deficits or, or you know, looking for local alternatives such as parcel taxes for more funding. Um, and, you know, your term started with two pretty big teacher strikes in Los Angeles and Oakland, uh, and there appear to be more on the horizon, Santa Rosa, Madera, Sacramento City Unified. Uh, you know, what, what do you think is causing this wave of unrest? Well, if you look at where we were in per-pupil spending before Prop 13 passed, California was number one in per-pupil spending. And so there's a direct correlation to the challenges that our local districts are experiencing in not having enough revenue. They need help from the state. And mind you, it's not just school districts who've been negatively impacted by by Prop 13's passage. Um, Local governments of every kind have been impacted. Now, please, I want to be clear. I am not suggesting that we have a split roll tax and that it increases anyone's taxes in this room. I don't want anyone to leave here and say, Tony Thurman said he's going to raise our taxes. That's not what I'm saying. But there are ways to reform Proposition 13 to protect um, seniors, homeowners, and small businesses from having to pay more taxes. But it would put the burden back on large corporations that have enjoyed um, kind of a shelter from paying their fair share of taxes. Most Californians have really gone above and beyond in, in providing more to help California. They've tightened their belts, and they've given more and more and more especially for kids. Um, We have to shift the burden back now to those who've profited in large ways um, to say that we're all California. We have to all be in for California. Um, And it is not for us to be only in when it's convenient, you know, and to say that we want to benefit from the beauty that the state has and the diversity, uh, but yet we're not going to pay our fair share. And so I believe that you're going to see a change for local districts when we make reform um, that... um, that really draws everyone in to, to do their fair share. And, I, and I'm really thankful for our new governor. His budget proposes um, a great deal to support education um, from K-12, actually from early education, K-12, and higher education. Fifty-three percent of the governor's budget is focused on education from birth through higher education. Um, it really does help to close some of the gap. And I, I view it as a way of helping us to get to um, the more permanent funding sources that he's invested in his proposal for the state more to help local districts. And, and the districts need the help from the state. A uh, thing that we that that keeps recurring in how, um, you know, the strikes have unfolded is, um, you know, uh, teachers unions have said that have insisted that school districts have, you know, the, the financial means or, or the, uh, method to. Um, fulfill a lot of the the requests that they are asking for, which spans from teacher pay to, you know, support resources. I think a lot of the awareness from the strike, you know, just showed the the need for guidance counselors and nurses. Um, But I'm wondering, you know, because you you were involved in, in the Oakland strike personally, and you were involved in the LA teacher strike. You know, what what is the reality of what these school districts can do to to meet the financial uh, demand, because it is uh, something that we're seeing with Sacramento City Unified and other. There's a lot of distrust between um, teachers unions and sometimes the school board and the administration. There is a history in, in this state and maybe in the country of times when school boards would sort of hide the, the revenue that was available, would overinflate, you know, how much money would go into, say, supplies or, you know, some other area um, as a way of avoiding having to negotiate salaries, right? Um, That's just a fact, and that has contributed to why some of these strikes have actually occurred, the lack of trust um, that exists. The the other reality that exists is that for a district like Oakland, um, you know, Oakland has a Oakland had to be bailed out a few years ago because of its financial pressure and and now has a state loan that has to be paid back every year. The cost of that loan is $33 million. And so that means that 
something like $6 million right off of the top of whatever the district's revenue is, has to get paid to the state loan first to cover interest and principal payments. And so that takes away from the, the needs of the classroom, the needs of teachers, the need for training. And there are many districts that are in the same position. Um, many of the districts that you described are paying back loans. And then people always say, well, why can't the state just forgive the loan? It's because there was a time when the state actually sold the loan to private entities to get cash. Um, I wasn't in the legislature. I just want you to know um, uh, that the state sold the loan for cash. And now the loan is held by private entities that expect to be paid. And so if it's $33 million for Oakland, a sizable amount for Vallejo, a sizable amount for Inglewood, um, you can multiply it by many, many districts. And now Sacramento City Unified, um, which doesn't currently have a loan, is looking at how do they cut how do they cut twenty five thirty five million dollars between now and the end of the fiscal year there's not much to cut it 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 warns and threatens that unless something miraculous happens that's a district that's also going to need a financial bailout from the state and then they'll take on a loan and then they'll be in receivership. Um, I know what it's like. I served at a school district that was in receivership for more than twenty years. Um, and that meant that payments to the state and to the agencies that held the loan superseded the things that our students needed. I'm so proud that after many years of struggle, we paid our loan and our debt off five years early. And you know what happened to the company that owned the loan? They asked us to pay a prepayment penalty for paying it off early. You know what we told them? Good luck collecting that. Okay. <laughs> And we restored our district to local control because no one is going to financially benefit off of the backs of our young people. But this is the situation that most of our districts are in um, because they just haven't been able to generate the revenue locally and on their own to meet all the costs uh, of providing an education in the state. Um, again, Sac City, you know, another, another district where, where, you know, there is distrust with the union. And, yes. and uh, just two months in, you, you've... You've gone through the experience. What does it take to, to get um, union representatives and, and school district leaders at the table to, you know, resolve, uh, you know, that ticking time bomb, essentially? It sounds simple, but it's true. There needs to be a commitment to stay at the table. Um, when it came to the Oakland strike, um, I, I got a call from the teachers union and from the school board on the same day asking if I would intervene in the strike on the very same day, within minutes of each other. Actually, it was a text message. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and, um, but what became clear is that there was a breakdown in their communication. And when they, I, when they asked, you know, we don't really have the capacity to mediate, uh, you know, strikes across the state for all the districts that we have. But I said yes for two reasons. One, because um, I've spent almost 10 years working with students in Oakland, um, and it's, it's part of my community. Um, and the other reason is because the two parties accepted my one condition. And my one condition was, if I do this, you must stay at the table until an agreement is reached. And, and they did. And, and I think that's the key, that no matter what the breakdown is, no matter the lack of trust, the moment that people start talking to each other in the media, instead of talking to each other in the boardroom, we're losing. And, and that was the one condition that I insisted upon, that you must stay at the table no matter what. And there were times when that got tested. There were times when people wanted to leave. Uh, there were times when I wanted to leave. When we started at 11 o'clock at night and went till 7 a.m. the next morning and we weren't done, I wanted to walk away, too. But the commitment was you had to stay at the table. You had to keep talking. And I think that's what it's going to take to work through some of the issues of trust for the districts that are potentially uh, facing a strike. Uh, we have a couple questions from the audience that I wanted to make sure we got to. Um, uh, one of the audience members asked, you know, 2017-18 data shows that 774,000 students in special education in Cal are in special education uh, in California. Uh, what is your vision for strengthening educational services and outcomes for this, you know, uh, population of students? 
I started, we started working on this um, in the last few years. You know, California, like most states, underfunds um, special education. And we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of students who are um, being enrolled in education. And the federal government is the biggest culprit because the federal government um, provides almost no funding um, in terms of what's owed and, and, and needed for special education. So the state tries to make up the difference. And so what happens, districts start to do this thing where instead, you know, districts start to deny families services that are needed instead of saying what's in the best interest of the student because they feel the financial pressure, they say, bless you, they say it's too expensive and so we're going to deny you. Those families get denied and then they go and they get an attorney. And then the attorney sues on behalf of the family. And so ultimately that student gets what he or she needs, but now the district has to pay out more. And then it puts in a, in, in more pressure on the overall costs for providing special education. So the way we've come at it is, um, you know, the governor's budget provides more money for special education this year. Um, in the last few budget cycles, we provided more money for training for special education teachers because it's such a hard job to support young people who have needs. Um, many of our students are being served in classes where they don't have the things that they should have, like a one-on-one attendant, where they don't have the right resources. And then sometimes districts just end up saying, we cannot serve this student, so we're going to uh, refer them to what's called a special day school or uh, a non-public um, school, and sometimes the costs are quite expensive. Um, I believe that we have to provide students what they are entitled to. If they have an, I, an individual education plan, or even if they have a 504 plan, which is a designation for getting services, um, even though you may not have an individual education plan, I think we have to make decisions based on what's in the best interest of the student and then have the political will to fund the cost of special education. And when we see new permanent revenue in 2020 and beyond, I believe we'll be able to move things in the right direction to support special education. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. And um, arguably one of the top financial challenges right now cited by local school boards and superintendents is pension obligations. Uh, the student, the state teacher retirement system, CalSTRS, has a $103 billion unfunded liability. And based on an agreement from Governor Brown, pension payments from schools are scheduled to, get, to nearly double from 8% of payroll uh, in 2014 to roughly 19% by 2021. Uh, Governor Newsom obviously recognized that this was an issue and, and earmarked some relief for uh, schools in his budget proposal. But I think that the top of mind question for, for school officials and board members that are responsible for balancing, uh, you know, the local school district budgets is, you know, whether they can expect more substantial help from the state or if this is something that uh, they're going to have to go seek out local alternatives such as parcel taxes to to try and fix in the near term. Uh, yes, the pension question. Um, look, I think everyone deserves a pension um, and. I think that we have to figure out how we're going to pay for it and how we keep the promises that have been made um, to those who work in local government or who work in school districts. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with the governor's budget. It really does provide um, more money to cover some of the, um, the rising costs of education. Um, it does provide more money to address some pension costs. Um, do you, does everyone know what it's meant by the by the unfunded liability. That's basically saying if everyone who will be eligible to retire in the future retired all at once, we wouldn't have enough to pay off that expense. And so most, most uh, school districts and cities pay a little bit at a time. They pay what they have to pay, and they try to put away a little bit to, to get there. So please, let's not all retire all at once, right? Um, but really, I think we have to figure out how we, how we keep the promises. If we say that we're providing um, a pension to employees who've made a decision to earn less money than they might in, say, the business world uh, in exchange for having a pension, 
um, we have to figure that out because those same employees are also very poorly paid. Uh, and so the legislature over the last four to six years has helped districts more and more, um, while at the same time putting away more money for a rainy day. Um, but we are seeing that the cost of pensions are growing. It is just a fact. And I think that we can have tough conversations about how we tackle those costs when we um, work with our employee groups. We work with everyone involved. Um, you know, in 2014, um, then-Governor Brown proposed changes that said everyone would pay a little bit more, that individuals would pay a little more, that school districts would pay a little bit more, and the state would pay a little bit more. It's going to require the we're all in to do a little bit more uh, to help us work through uh, these issues going forward. And we've named, um, if anyone's interested, uh, I, this month we've named um, a special task force on pension reform to help us identify uh, strategies and solutions to address pensions. It is open to anyone, an educator, government leader, business leader, um, anyone who has interest in working on the topic. Uh, we welcome your involvement in our work group. Sure. And another audience question here. Um, thank you for the questions, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, um, one of your initiatives is to improve STEM education for all students. Uh, do you have any plans to collaborate with tech companies in Silicon Valley uh, to provide educational resources that would help with this initiative? We love to work with the tech companies all throughout the state. Um, you know, in San Francisco, uh, every student from preschool through 12th grade has the chance to study computer science. I think, and that is largely supported um, by, by private companies that are partnering with the district to provide those kinds of resources, to train teachers, to provide professional development, to make sure that there's good equipment. Um, and so that's a blueprint that I think can be followed, but many companies have not stepped forward um, to, to offer that support. And the state cannot do it by itself. You know, maybe 20% of our school districts offer computer science at all in the state. Um, it's because we just don't have the resources to, you know, we have a teacher shortage as it is. It's hard enough for us to get teachers in all subjects, in math, in science. And so for us to now have teachers who are prepared to teach computer science and coding um, and, and STEAM um, means that we need to recruit even more teachers. And that means we need more partnerships um, with industry. Uh, this is the perfect place to partner with industry because, let's face it, the students of today are the workforce of tomorrow. My two daughters, they know more about every device that I've ever purchased, and, and they get mad at me when I'm reading the manual and trying to figure out how to use it. They're 16 and 12 years old. I call them the IT department. <laughs> when I get a new device, they show me how it works instinctively. And I think many of our students instinctively understand today's technology. But we have to give them a boost and a support on how they can go beyond just instinctive kind of knowledge and actually get to a place where they're either creating apps or they're writing code um, or they're going to become the engineers of tomorrow. And even if they don't, even if they don't become an entrepreneur, if every student thinks entrepreneurially, uh, imagine what that does for their future. Imagine what that does for our community. Every student should have access to computer science. Every student should have access to the chance to learn more than one language, to see that they're global thinkers. All of our students should have access to civics. Our kids are more than a test score. And, and the days of asking our kids to memorize data and then sort of spit it back out like a computer function, uh, that's, that's behind us. We have to put that behind us. We want our students to be critical thinkers, right, who can help us to see our way to the future uh, and to be citizens of the world. And to me, that means, yes, getting more investments, for science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Um, another reader question, uh, question from the audience. High school graduation rates are up, but many of these students, uh, for the most part, you know, under, un, from, coming from underserved communities, are not graduating from college. What can we do to increase these college graduation rates? I'm spending a lot of time focused on college affordability. Um, it is unreal what 
American students are paying to go to college now, and um, the high level of debt is is so intense. And on top of that, our students are struggling. They're not just struggling to pay tuition and buy books. Now, many of our students are homeless and hungry. And there's a survey from uh, of students at the CSU. There's a very high percentage of students who attend the CSU who are homeless, and many at the CSU and at the UC who are who are hungry. Um, and so. We've got to address these issues if we want to have better retention. Um, we've got to address overall affordability. And this year, uh, we're working on a new bill. We're sponsoring a new bill to address college affordability. And I see um, presumably some students in the room. Um, we've made an invitation for students to help us get the policy right. We want students to write the policy for how we deal with college affordability. We made a statewide call for anybody who wants to write the bill. Uh, He's pointing to somebody over here. I don't know who that is, but um, we've got a bill for you, and your name is ready to be on it. Um, because who better to guide us on how we better support uh, students than students? And um, we're open to anyone. Uh, if we don't, again, if we don't make investments, we've allowed our systems of higher education to begin to, to experience decay. We have not invested in the community college system. We have a great community college system. Uh, you can spend two years at a community college and then transfer into a UC or a CSU and save yourself and your family a great deal of money. And, and, and by the way, be getting a great education. We've not invested in our community college system, our UC system, um, our CSU system. We, are the, we as the state, we're the number one investor in these systems. And if we're not putting more in, we're going to fall behind in research. We're going to fall behind in professors and faculty who can help to promote cutting-edge ideas and who can help to prepare great thinkers of the world who will be enrolled. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. You know, right now the CSU is thinking about changing, proposing changes to the A to G requirements, you know, the, the number of units in math and science and English and foreign language that you're supposed to take, because they're seeing a major drop-off in uh, mathematics um, by students' senior year. And the CSU is experimenting with the idea that there would be a new math requirement, a fourth-year requirement, because they're concerned that as students come into college, uh, that they're not prepared to be able to be successful in staying and completing. And so uh, there are all these conversations taking place, but I believe that we have to do more around affordability um, to make it easier for our students to get a college education. Uh, everyone who wants one should have the chance Take it from me. You know, my first job, I was flipping burgers on the overnight shift as a freshman in college, making $3.35 an hour. Um, I figured out real quick that the more education you get, the more you're going to earn. And uh, we have to open the doors to anyone who wants it. Anyone who's willing to work hard can get a college education. Uh, we've got to do more to diversify our, our, our student ranks. Uh, we're losing. We have very small percentages of students of color and students from low-income backgrounds. Our faculty are the same. We have mostly part-time faculty. We have very few faculty of color. and We have to diversify our workforce. We have to create more opportunity and fewer barriers. And right now, we're, we're experiencing the barriers that exist. I think it's far time now that we figure out ways to help open doors. Because, again, we're all going to benefit from what's created by the future faculty, the future researcher. And it's incumbent upon us to help open those doors. Let's talk about charter schools. Uh, we do have a couple. Oh, looks like it's time to go. <laughs> I thought it said no more time. Let's talk about charter schools. We do, we do have um, a couple questions from the audience regarding this subject. And so, uh, Very good. You, know, you know, this issue has been simmering for a long time in California. And, really and this simmer. year, it really does seem to be coming to a head. Yeah. Governor Newsom recently signed into law a fast-tracked transparency bill yes. that requires charter schools, publicly funded uh, schools that operate independent of school districts and that account for 10% of California student enrollment, breathe, to follow, <laughs> to follow the same open meeting law, uh, open meeting and procurement laws as traditional district schools. Yes. Uh, a group at the same time, a group of Democratic legislators plan to advance bills this session that would impose more significant uh, regulations on, on the state's charter schools, including capping the number of charter schools allowed to operate uh, at the current number of about 1,300. Um, 
this was a th- something that followed the LA teacher strike and Governor Newsom asked you to put together a task force to study the impact uh, that charter school growth in the state has had on uh, district budgets and to put together a report and policy recommendations by July 1st. What is the scope of this effort and what other questions will it answer? I was going to say, I agree with everything that you said. It's all true. It's a fact. The, the, um, the governor has named a special task force to make reforms around charter schools. And um, in, in naming the task force, the governor cited the growth of charter schools and the fiscal impact that the charter schools have had on the traditional public school system. Now, let me be clear. There are 6 million students in our state. 10% of them are in a charter school. I'm going to serve all of the students in our public schools. Um, th- there is, There has been data that has been shown to say that there has been, um, for many districts, a significant fiscal impact and loss of revenue directly attributed to the growth of charter schools. Um, two districts in particular have been cited in a report um, um, San Diego Unified School District has been cited to have lost $66 million related to charter school growth, and Oakland Unified has been cited to have lost $47-some million. And so at a time, as you pointed out earlier, we have districts that are struggling just to manage their, their basic finances. Those kind of losses are significant. And for those reasons, there's been a call for some kind of reform that takes into consideration the fiscal impact of charters, that takes into consideration how charters are authorized. Right now, a charter school can get authorized at the state level, um, even though the charter school itself sits in some part of the community where the state can barely monitor that school. And so uh, I feel very honored that the governor has asked me to to, um, put together this task force, and we've had several meetings, and we're facilitating a conversation about what would be reasonable charter um, reform, Um, because right now there's a huge fight in this state and in this country, and it's being played out like this, charter versus non-charter. And while that fight is happening, there are all these other things that we have to be doing as well, like addressing our achievement gap, like addressing test scores that have been flat, like addressing science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, and addressing our teacher shortage. I don't know how we help our students if we don't have teachers at the head of every class. I had a colleague tonight on the way here tell me that she knows of a teacher who just took a job uh, in a class in sixth grade where there's been no teacher all year. And I just don't know how we can prepare our students without a teacher. And so um, we have to have tough conversations, including the fiscal impact of charter growth on the traditional districts, um, and come out in a way where we can do what's best for all of our students in the state. And just uh, briefly, um, is, is this group working under the expectation that the legislature will adopt um, the, rec- the recommendations that come out of it. I ask because, you know, the legislature, the legislators who've introduced um, these set of bills appear intent on, on giving them a hearing before <laughs> July 1st. <laughs> you must be reading Cal Matters. I read a story just like that. <laughs> Maybe you wrote it. <laughs> um, the, the task force has been asked to make a recommendation by the end of this legislative session so that presumably if there was something for the governor and the legislature to act on, that they could. Um, the, the legislation that you've referenced, you know, doesn't have to, you know, those legislators aren't required to wait for the task force. And, and let's face it, the task force will make recommendations for charter reform, but the task force recommendations can be non-binding. They are not binding in a way that says if the task force recommends this, that the legislators must do this. The legislators operate independently and and they're moving forward on their legislation. And so what you have really are two simultaneous processes um, where legislators are having a conversation uh, about charter schools. The task force is having a conversation about charter schools. And we're, we're monitoring that and um, we're willing to work closely with the legislators um, so that w- all input is taken into account. Uh, and, you know, it, it has been 26 years since um, charters became law here. i uh, just hoping to get your thoughts. What, what was or what is the purpose of charter schools here in California? 
and what role should they play in today's education landscape? No, I'm learning a lot about the original charter legislation and what was articulated as the intent. We've had the opportunity to hear from some of the very people who wrote the original legislation. And as they've described it, um, that charter schools, the purpose of charter schools was to lend itself to some innovation, um, to find other ways to, um, to educate students. Um, I just don't believe, I think that there's a role for all schools. Parents will choose what they feel is the best uh, for, their, for their children. Uh, but as someone who um, has worked in districts for many years and seen how districts have ailed because of the lack of funding, I don't think that the answer to fixing our problems is simply opening a new school, and especially opening a new school without resources. I, I'm glad that we are now having the conversation about fiscal impacts and about what is the role of charter schools in our state. Uh, there is a role, but I do not believe that the state should ever open new schools without providing resources for those schools. I do not believe that education is, a, is an environment for competition. And there are many who have said that to me, and they've said that soft competition is okay. Here's my concern. There, you cannot open enough charter schools or new schools to serve every single student in our state. That means if you take the competition approach, that means some students, a lot of students, will be left behind. And again, I don't believe that that's what our mission is. I believe that the promise that we make to each other in society is to provide the opportunity to get an education, to, to live a better life, to be able to acquire what you want through your hard work for yourself and your family. And so for me, that means that competition's okay in some environments, but when it comes to education, we have a responsibility to make sure every single student gets an education. That's why I left the legislature. I love the legislature. I love being elected with almost 90% of the vote. <laughs> Maybe the highest vote turnout of any legislator in history of California. I love that. But my aha moment was the day that I realized that I could have a political legacy that was about improving education. I still believe that we can improve our education system. I bet everything on it, literally everything. I risked it all, but guess what? The kids in the state are risking even more, and I was okay taking that risk. And thanks to you good people, you know, <laughs> I'm getting the opportunity to go after what we need to do to serve our kids in the state. And so um, you've had an opportunity to look under the hood for, for two, two months, two months, <laughs> two months. Um, but, you know, just a broad question here, when it comes to addressing the achievement gap and the fact that, um, you know, white and, and Asian students are twice more likely to perform in better at reading and math than their uh, black and Hispanic uh, peers. You know what? Um, what is the state? Obviously, this is an effort that, that requires a lot of moving pieces. It's yes. the local school districts, the state, um, it's the legislature. But what is the state doing right in addressing the achievement gap and making sure that it's a top of mind issue? And what what are some things that the state needs to, you know, get, get its act on? I'm really impressed that in the last four years, the state has invested a billion dollars in early education programs. And that's preschool and child care. Um, because we know when you invest in early education, students are more likely to graduate and less likely to drop out. It's just as simple as that. We've known this for many decades, but yet we still don't have a universal preschool program. Um, and so I'm thankful that we have a governor who, who has said, let us move to make sure that every four-year-old is in preschool, and then we move that every three-year-old can be, and has said, let's create a diverse mix of offerings of child care or preschool for all families. Now what we have to do is create more slots and more opportunities for students and increase the pay for those who work in child care. Our child care workers are amongst the lowest paid in the state. And, and these are our children. These are our babies. We say that we value our children, but yet we pay very little to those who care for them. And so we have to right-size that. We have to pay better. We have to provide more training and create better work environments so that we can recruit a workforce who wants to work in child care, who wants to work in early education. Um, 
I believe that it is critical that we help every student learn to read by third grade. And for those reasons, I'm launching this year under the Department of Education a statewide literacy campaign so that we can work with students and educators and families on making sure that our children learn to read by third grade. Children who learn to read by third grade are also more likely to graduate. Children who don't learn to read by third grade often drop out. One of the biggest issues that gets in the way of students learning to read by third grade is chronic absenteeism. If you look at kindergarten and first grade, there are high rates of students who miss more than 10% of school. That puts them in in a pace where they may not learn to read by third grade. Now, these are challenges for our state, but these are areas that we can actually make inroads in. There's a reason why kindergartners don't make it to school. Sometimes it's illness of the student or someone in their family, homelessness, transportation issues, hunger issues. And so when a social worker or a nurse goes to work with those families, what we have found is their attendance improves. And guess what? That attendance has a dollar figure attached to it. That's how schools get their revenue in the state. And so when a student misses, uh, the school loses revenue. And when we get that student back in school, we generate revenue for the school and we're guaranteeing that they're not going to drop out. And so we all win. Because when kids drop out, let's face it, the state spends upwards of $6 billion on prisons in the state. I'd rather, wouldn't we rather invest to educate and not incarcerate our kids? That's why this year the California Department of Education is sponsoring legislation to ban for-profit prisons in the state of California. Because people are making money off of our kids. They're making projections and hoping that they don't learn to read by third grade, so they end up in a private prison where the motive is profit. That's perverse, and that's going to change, and we're going to help all of our kids in the state. And then, you know, one of the areas where Governor Newsom has distinguished himself from Governor Brown is the idea of using data to um, improve student outcomes. Um, he's endorsed a longitudinal data system that would track students' learning outcomes from cradle to career, as he puts it. Um, and, you know, legislation has been introduced this year to do just that. Uh, you have also expressed support for a longitudinal data system. And I'm just wondering, you know, it, what if there was anything that you wanted to know that, um, that we can't see in the data that we're collecting right now. You know, the the governor has endorsed the longitudinal data system, and then he's put $10 million into his proposed budget to help build it, which I think is great. I think what's important about the data, I think the data will help us get to where we want to be. And I go back to what you said earlier about flat test scores. I think that is an example of a place where we need to really dig into the data to see why. Because it's not that there aren't people trying. There are people trying every single year to close the achievement gap. And so now we have to study the data to figure out why test scores would be flat in any particular community. Um, Once we study that data and we understand the why behind that data trend, I think we can really start to make some gains and move things in the right direction. And then another question from the audience, uh, who has identified herself? Um, Uh, My name is Stephanie Fitch, and I was recently elected uh, vice president of the Ravenswood City School Board in East Palo Alto and Menlo Park. We are facing many challenges, but one that concerns one that concerns me is our declining enrollment, especially since that affects our ADA funding uh, and other things. Do you have any advice for uh, Miss Stephanie Fitch on how As a school board member, she can help her district secure funding, retain teachers, uh, and keep kids in their district. Well, thank you, Trustee and Vice President Fitch, for the easy questions. Let's give her a round of applause, a new new vice president of the board. I think education is the hardest place to serve in politics, so thank you for doing that. Um, I I don't think there are any easy answers, but I do think that there are some short-term and long-term things that she can do. Um, clearly we need more funding to help offset some of the enrollment decline. I think we have to look at why the enrollment decline. And then I think in some places there's just population decline. Uh, people have moved away. 
from the Bay Area. They've moved to centers that are more affordable. And I think there's an opportunity for the school district to work with the city on building affordable housing with an emphasis on workforce housing, because we're losing we're losing um, what they call the missing middle. You know, we're, we're losing nurses and firefighters and police officers and teachers. And I've actually been trying to pass a teacher housing bill for the last three years, because I believe if we lose if districts like where my kids attend, we lose 200 teachers every single year. The number one reason they give is they can't afford to live where they work. And so that tells me we got to pay them more. And we have to build affordable housing for our workforce. And so I think if you study back to the data trends, if we study why the population, why the enrollment decline, um, I think we can make some changes. And then there's some things that may be harder to do, but worth exploring, like how are the boundaries of the districts aligned? Getting together with the county supervisors and other school districts to talk about growth trends, to figure out how to realign district boundaries to help every district in the county, right? There's all this competition. People come to the state board and they say, please let us move into this district's boundaries so that we can get some other benefit when every district is experiencing the same level of decline. And so uh, I think that we can look at ways to redraw boundaries that can be helpful. And then I think we have to have just hard conversations about how do we improve the quality of education? Um, people are going to make decisions based on what they perceive as the, the best education that they can get and the things that we can do to make them better. More magnet school programs. Um, you know, I, in, my, in my, the district where my kids go to school, I love that there is an elementary school um, where students can learn Spanish. Um, there's another elementary school where students can learn um, um, uh, Cantonese. But they're like two schools in a district that serve almost 40,000 kids. I believe that creating more bilingual education and dual language immersion opportunities make our schools more competitive, make parents want to double down and invest in our schools. And so these are a few of the things that have been on my mind and, and that come to mind as I think about your question. Uh, I'd be more than happy to work with you and your colleagues uh, offline to see uh, what things we can do together um, to support your district. How's that for an answer? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll be on the lookout for that. Um, <laughs> Superintendent, uh, you know, we published a story in November on looking at local school bonds um, for majority of the school districts here in California. It's the main source of funding that they that they get for facilities and school renovations and new buildings. Um, and we found some pretty, you know, glaring disparities in the amount of money that school districts have been able to bond in the last 20 years. Uh, at the top, you have districts like Beverly Hills Unified that's getting $271,000 per kid. And at the bottom, you have schools that haven't gotten anything or have gotten something that amounts to about $838 per kid in the Hillmar School District in Merced County. And I'm just wondering, you know, if you think is whether there's a solution at the state level with the school facilities program to um, help ensure that that the districts that need uh, the funding, the, the, the districts that have, um, you know, classrooms that haven't been renovated in 50, 60 years have an alternative uh, to, to get the money that they need for their facilities. You know, we do have a state bond that the voters have approved that has not been fully consumed that would provide more dollars to school districts to do basic maintenance, um, to make things compliant with ADA requirements. And I think that we have to utilize those dollars that the voters have provided to us. I'm very grateful to the voters for supporting it. And um, I think we, you know, there's been a trend in making it easier for local districts to pass measures. You know, um, lowering the threshold has been lower for passing bonds, um, which is very helpful the, to school districts. Um, there's an effort underway to lower the threshold for uh, passing parcel taxes. Um, I, at the end of the day, I don't know that districts can do it all by themselves. I, I think that um, there are those who are interested in uh, an additional bond. Um, and, and a few legislators this year have bills that would put bond measures on the ballot uh, in 2020 um, for a combination of um, K-12 schools 
and in higher education, because many of our facilities in higher education have also been neglected. And so I think we need comprehensive revenue reform, where we look at the needs um, from early ed through higher education, rather than causing these systems to compete. And because I think facilities do matter. Um, at the end of the day, it's what happens in the facility that matters the most. But when kids go to dilapidated schools, that has a big impact on them. And, and uh, our facilities team at the State Department of Education, they view improving facilities as a key strategy for helping to close the achievement gap. And so we've got to figure out ways to, to, to finance schools and um, to finance modernization um, and I believe a lot of that will come through state bond programs and, and, and permanent revenue that the state can help to generate uh, for local districts. And unfortunately, we've reached the point in our program where there is time for only one last question. So uh, at, briefly, <laughs> um, you know, you have, you have years ahead of your, your term here, but um, in the two months that you've been in office, what's the, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned so far? I'm, I'm really grateful to the people who work at the California Department of Education. It's a very hard job, and you don't have the resources that you need to do the job. And, and I've learned quickly that, um, you know, getting elected to this position means that everybody now puts all their blame on me for <laughs> all the things that don't get done. And I accept that. I'm willing to accept that. Uh, all I ask is that people also help provide solutions that we can work on together. Um, and so I'm more encouraged than ever. Uh, the job is demanding and busy and complex every single day. And it's never dull, ever. Um, but I am more encouraged than ever about what we can do um, for California's kids. Maybe it's because we have a governor who has four little kids and who's really been a visionary and in his budget proposal has put more money into supporting districts and more money into like our, our long-term savings at the same time. I, I think that's brilliant uh, that the legislature is so focused on early education, like our governor. I just think that now is the time it, th this is the time. This is the moment for the conversation we're having about making California better in education and doing more in affordable housing and doing more to help the homeless. It is all connected. This is our time. I've never been more proud to be a Californian, to be a parent, to be a public servant. And I believe that we can move the needle in the right direction. And I'm excited. And uh, let's roll up our sleeves together and let's get this done. Our thanks to Mr. Tony Thurman, California State Superintendent of Public Instruction. Uh, we also want to thank our audiences here and on the radio, television, and the Internet. This program has been held in association with CalMatters. I'm Ricardo Cano, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. <laughs> I have to do it. <laughs> great, great. I think you enjoy that. <laughs> I did.